In his dissertation, Traveling Descent, Activists, Borders, and the U.S. National Security State, historian Ryan Archibald had this to say about travel restrictions during the Cold War. During the Cold War, U.S. officials developed an expansive national security state that linked socialist, communist, and decolonizing states with domestic and often racialized left-wing political movements. Attending to how the state after 1945 attempted to manage the unprecedented circulation of bodies, commodities, and ideas through technological advancements, particularly in air travel, internal, and foreign security were mutually constituted projects. As travel became an important instrument of U.S. foreign policy, officials viewed travel by anti-war and anti-racist activists, particularly to non-capitalist countries, as threatening to U.S. security and an imagined community of global capitalism. The construction of these activist travels as subversive informed the development of laws and surveillance technologies aimed at both disrupting transnational social movements and strengthening the nation-state's borders when distinctions between the, quote, foreign and the, quote, domestic appeared to quickly erode. The free movement of U.S. citizens deemed acceptable to the U.S. state was largely premised on procedures intended to demobilize those considered threatening and outside the political community. Mechanisms of travel control helped to constitute and reconsolidate global racial hierarchies and U.S. empire through the construction of particular mobilities as racialized and subversive, and states as threatening and illegitimate due to their opposition to U.S. capitalism. here today with historian Ryan Archibald, who's a lecturer at California State University, Dominguez Hills, and specializes in the history of the U.S. empire, the national security state, the politics of travel, and transnational movements. How are you doing today, Ryan? Oh, doing pretty well. Enjoying uh, some nice sunshine, you know? Yeah. Doing okay. When I forgot to mention the most important part of your bio, which is you're a listener to our show, which is by yes. far blows the rest away. So first time, long time, and uh, <laughs> essentially have bribed my way onto the show. So this is a great, uh, you know, if you bug people enough as a listener, you can be, you can come on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Another another bit of proof and our theory. <laughs> if you're a fan long enough, you will be on the show. <laughs> I, I am living proof of that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. That that's when you reach the extra, the next level is when they when we make you a host of the show. <laughs> so, Ryan, you know, you wrote your dissertation on. Uh, sort of the politics of travel, largely in the post-war era. And it's really interesting because as somebody who studies policing and security and stuff like that, 
not a lot of people write about this. I gotta say this, <laughs> this is a lot of unique sort of information in here. And I just thought you, you begin one of your chapters with the story. Uh, it's after the Helsinki Olympics in 1952. There's this article in the worker magazine. It's titled an iron curtain made in Washington. What do they mean an iron curtain made in Washington? Sure, yeah. So uh, the article is written um, in uh, the Worker Magazine, which is a, a publication associated with the Communist Party USA. Um, and essentially what she is writing about is how uh, the state of the world as it existed as, you know, through the Cold War, you still have the Korean War happening. It was not reflected in kind of what was going on at the Helsinki Games. It's, you know, being a representation of kind of world unity. But what she's referring to here is that uh, the Iron Curtain that she's referencing is the set of travel restrictions that the United States had put in place since, well, they predate the World War II, uh, post-World War II era, but they really come become like the a lot of political attention focuses on them after 1950 and that is the denial of visas the denial of passports um, and immigration restrictions based on political uh, beliefs uh, one's political beliefs and you know here she's referencing as an iron curtain uh, referencing um, Churchill's famous speech in which you know the Soviet Union is, partitioning Europe into a zone of freedom uh, for Western Europe and unfreedom for Eastern and the Soviet Union. Um, and here she's trying to say that, you know, while the United States and Western Europe critique the Soviet Union for its uh, policies, um, that it violates, you know, freedom, that the United States is guilty as well um, and uh, you know, guilty of hypocrisy if not more. Yeah, I mean, you know, she goes further, right, saying that basically the U.S. has, has decreed in true Hitler fashion, gotta love the way the old CPUSA used to write, <laughs> that no person whose entry or departure is not to be in the in best interest of those who would see fascism come to this land can penetrate the Iron Curtain dropped by the U.S. State Department. Basically arguing that, you know, in order to preserve maybe a right-leaning politics, the U.S. wants to prevent its potential radicals from traveling abroad, right? And and uh, potential uh, radicals from entering the country. Um, and radicals broadly defined to include pacifists, and essentially anybody who critiqued the U.S. empire and uh, the Cold War and its Cold War yeah. foreign policy. In, in sort of using that Iron Curtain language, right, she's juxtaposing this image that the U.S. is already creating. Yeah, as you said, of the Soviet Union as this zone of unfreedom where people aren't allowed to move around uh, versus the West where uh, apparently there's freedom of movement and stuff. Uh, but maybe you could walk us through this sort of early history of, you know, freedom of movement in the U.S. Uh, and explore whether that's a, ever been a real thing. Per se. Sure. Um, so the way I see it, that freedom and movement are kind of inseparable concepts in American uh, history and in American law. 
uh, one's freedom, especially through the 19th century, could be indexed by uh, one's de uh, degree or their ability to move. So, for example, you have um, the freedom of movement of Europeans uh, who are um, free to colonize uh, the North American continent. Um, and that is their settlement and taking of the land is justified in the text in part on the basis that indigenous peoples were too mobile and thus lacked a notion of property, right? Mm -hmm. um, there, in the United States, measures that would kind of look like passports uh, that we would say, oh, that's similar to a passport are really connected to uh, the institution of slavery um, and of strengthening that system. So you have, you know, historians have cited the past system uh, essentially um, permitting an enslaved person from departing uh, the slaveholder's property, um, you know, if they were stopped by anybody asking, you know, what are you doing? Uh, they would say, you know, that you're supposed to go here uh, from point A to point B and that's it as kind of a, as a foundational moment or a, not a foundational moment, but an example of an early passport. Uh, there are also controls on uh, free uh, black people uh, in uh, Southern cities. The one historian has written about laws that were um, passed in Southern port cities to control the movement of black sailors. Um, you know, black sailors are really integral to the coastal economies of North America. Um, however, to uh, officials in the South, you know, represented were a danger uh, as they had the uh, ability to move. Um, and they feared that th these would be individuals who would conspire to uh, organize slave revolts, would you know, provide a, a means to escape, right? Mm -hmm. And so certain cities, but actually um, require that uh, black sailors hold a passport um, or hold a kind of document uh, in order to control their movement um, and to facilitate their surveillance. And I think interestingly in the, in the state of Texas, which I think might be the first Southern state to basically pass a law disallowing free blacks period inside the state uh, even requires uh essentially passes for free blacks basically saying like i'm gonna come here and i'm going to leave right <laughs> like you know in a in a sort of similar internet to maybe international travel today right they had to have like a strict agenda and a strict departure date <laughs> when you're gonna yeah. leave the state uh so you know you see this passes as a form of you know control both labor control but also yeah the sphere of radicals you know how does that change as it gets into the late 19th century what we would identify as a kind of modern passport regime is really connected. So we have these domestic kind of foundations, but there's the international foundations are in the control of the movements of Asian workers. Uh, so in the United States, there was an effort to uh, circumscribe immigration, um, particularly due to the demands by uh, nativists along the West Coast, um, demanding that Chinese workers be excluded. Um, and then that would, you know, uh, then go to include most all Asian workers. 
But the first major federal immigration law is the Chinese Exclusion Act. And uh, that act not only led to the development of the modern immigration system that exists in the United States, but also uh, had within it an exemption. And those included uh, teachers and merchants, uh, diplomats and students. Um, so it's re- the Exclusion Act is really designed to exclude all but a very, very few number of people. So it's basically and, like a like a was a H one B. Yeah, I was about today. to say the H one B visa. Yeah, <laughs> and essentially, in order to facilitate their migration, they have to obtain certain documentation. In the enforcement of the Page Act, actually in 1875, there is a system of surveillance that is conducted abroad by American consulates that other historians have identified as a passport-like surveillance, where their mm. photos are taken, uh, you know, they are interviewed, um, I wouldn't, not interviewed, I would say interrogated, um, mm. their records are checked. Um, basically, the bureaucratic, bureaucratic practices that would come to define what the passport office does uh, are really formed in an effort to uh, control and exclude Asian workers. And um, in the Page Act, in, in that instance, um, Chinese women. Yeah. Now, uh, for those who wanted to leave, if you were of Chinese descent and you wanted to leave the United States, say, it, but with the intent to return, mm-hmm. the law, the Exclusion Act had within it a provision called the Section 6, Section six of the Exclusion Act said that those that intended to do this needed to have a certificate um, that would uh, you know base essentially ensure their ability to leave the country mm. and then return. However, that all that ability to return is always questionable um, because immigration inspectors, especially in San Francisco and Seattle, are really connected to the anti-Chinese movement in those states. Um, and essentially, they believe that most documents carried by Asian immigrants are um, fraudulent. And so often you could be denied um, uh, entry and then you would have to uh, pursue other means, the courts or other means to you know, re-enter. And this was no other immigrant group was required to uh, obtain a re-entry permit. Uh, yeah until the repeal of the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1943. Oh, wow. You know, you have this, you know, this beginning of uh, an international sort of system of monitoring travel, right? Of course, initially targeted at a uh, demonized racial minority because that's how you pass things in the United States, right? Um, so how does then the passport office come about? So the State Department had been issuing passports through the 19th century. There's a set of, there's a couple of laws that Congress passes authorizing the State Department to issue passports. Um, the early passports are not required to um, leave the United States. Um, they may be required for certain European countries, um, but essentially they are certificates of good character. And they ask that uh, the state 
welcome this individual and as a you know a, a citizen or as a member of the U.S. polity. The requirement to possess a passport to leave the U.S. is really a product of World War One. Um, now the U.S. had a set of laws restricting um, various groups of people from entering the country, either laws or agreements with other countries to deny uh, passports to uh, their citizens in order to limit their numbers. Mm-hmm. However, by 1918, officials within uh, military intelligence, the State Department, the Justice Department, and the Bureau of Immigration believe that a passport law is required due to the questionable legality of the State Department's wartime practice of uh, requiring passports for leaving the country, which I believe was issued by, if my memory serves me right, um, by Wilson in either 1914 or 1916. I can't quite remember. There was an effort by these institutions to have a law in the books in order to make it uh, defendable in court, uh, but also it would help to facilitate the, an infrastructure to um, investigate uh, the citizens in the United States uh, who apply for passports, essentially to mm. expand um, the surveillance networks that they have been creating during the war. Mm. Now, in the hearings that they hold um, to uh, around what is called the Travel Control Act, um, they really identify the U.S.-Mexico border as a region of concern. Uh, This is in the context of the Mexican Revolution, uh, the Zimmerman telegram, uh, and they understand this space as a very anarchic space that is and a a weak spot for U.S. security. Mm -hmm. And the U.S. had longstanding agreements uh, dating back to the 19th century uh, with British officials uh, and Canadian officials along um, to, to uh, control um, the migration of Asian workers. And Britain becomes involved due to um, Asian workers leaving British colonies, such as India. To, so officials are really concerned about the ability of folks to travel, to traverse this border. And they are also very concerned about their inability to police their own citizens. They have a variety of laws designed to exclude uh, groups of people that they view as threatening. Um, there is the anarchist exclusion, uh, exclusion law. Uh, there are the various uh, exclusion laws applied to um, racialized populations, but they don't have a law targeting U.S. citizens. And they note that as of the beginning of 1918, the vast majority of people that they have charged or convicted under the Espionage Act were U.S. citizens. They were not um, they, they were not citizens. They were not outside agitators? No, they were not. Oh, there. my God. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, this to them is they're looking at the numbers and they're saying we have to do something. Mm. And the Travel Control Act is passed in, 19, in May of 1918. 
Now, it, the Tribal Control Act essentially uh, made it required for uh, made made passports require uh, required uh, for Americans to leave the United States, and it was going to be in force until 1921. Mm-hmm. Violators uh, could face up to $10,000 in fines. And then there was also a 20 year prison sentence. And these are very uh, onerous penalties. Um, And it's passed, you know, and if you look it, it may surprise folks, but if you look in the context of the legislation passed during World War I, it makes a lot of sense that these, um, that the penalties were so large. Uh, You know, Congress had just passed the Alien Anarchist Act of 1918 that, you know, enumerated a wide array of deportable offenses. Um, you had the Sedition and Espionage Act, essentially used to stifle dissent um, in the United States. So those penalties um, are, that this law is really reflective of those anxieties. Well, and this idea too, I mean, right in the names of some of these things, but this idea too of uh, uh, sort of American core, right? Of uh, people who are on board with the project, shall we, shall we say? Mm-hmm. And this alien other, which uh, they come to be surprised is not just immigrants, but also maybe, you know, uh, feared groups at home, domestic groups at home, who now are being covered for surveillance and for restriction of travel via this passport office, correct? Correct. Yeah. And it, it's it's I teach a class on immigration. Uh, and one of the things I tell my students is that while these laws that are passed to, especially in, in the turn of the century to target uh, anarchists and then after the war to target anarchists and Bolshevists, uh, those are targeted towards immigrants, but it's often people's experiences within the United States, within, you know, factories and within uh, their experiences with industrial capitalism that really radicalizes them. Yeah. Um, that really kind of uh, demonstrates that this system is not working for them. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's always startling to kind of look at any sort of left-wing like communist papers cartoon no matter where it is in the world if you look at a cartoon in the 20th century it's always an american capitalist (laughs) you know like the depiction of the capitalist is always the same which is an american a railroad baron really to be sure but um so so yeah so these increased restrictions come in and but you do make this note that i think is interesting you say you know that initially americans understood the documentary requirements of these new passports to be an affront to notions of middle class respectability and attack in an attack on their character right so people weren't just like perfectly willing to accept this no and this is uh I draw a lot on the work of another uh, scholar who's written on the passport and the development of the passport as an identification document, but he cites several letters that are sent um, to uh, the State Department, you know, protesting the demands that they uh, divulge certain information that was once regarded as private. And it's really a product of um, war uh, and through the 20th century that, you know, the state becomes a much larger presence in American lives, particularly through the New Deal that leads people to accept uh, 
you know, to, essentially that leads Americans to redefine their notions of privacy um, and their mm -hmm. notions of what information uh, to share and to divulge. And so particularly as we lead up to the next war, right, as we get in the 1930s and we're leading up to World War II, there's just increased uh, pressure, right, to accept more and more of these incursions, I guess, into people's privacy. So the Travel Control Act uh, and the um, powers that it enabled uh, the president to use, those were identified as temporary powers. So mm -hmm. the Travel Control Act essentially states that you know the U U.S. president can uh, determine if uh, can say that a passport is required in um, the event of a war, right? And uh, that, uh, with the peace treaty signed in 1921, that wartime is ended. Um, that, mm -hmm. And so the measure controlling or requiring passports uh, is ended. And now what, what Americans are responding to in that interwar period is this, the, requir the requirement um, to have a passport, not to necessarily to leave the United States, but to enter European countries, um, either for business or for leisure. Um, mm. Europe still retained its passport system that uh, and its pass and its requirements for passports to enter and leave uh, European countries uh, after that were created during World War One and then continued after. Um, it, the period before, in the late 19th century, Europe had actually loosened a lot of its travel um, controls, and there was no real, there wasn't necessarily a passport requirement to enter those countries. Mm. But for Americans in the interwar period, it's, you know, historians have written about how, especially during the New Deal, that the state be, uh, becomes a greater presence in ordinary people's lives through employment, through um, the provision of social services, uh, particularly the Social Security Act, um, that really ch changes people's notions of, of uh, privacy and uh, the relationship between citizen and state. Well, and so how does World War II then, I mean, we've, we've seen these sort of the ability during World War I to, to really ramp up some of these security measures. How does World War II affect these, these security measures? So in the late 1930s, uh, there is an effort in Congress to ensure that the U.S. remains neutral um, in the in the looming European conflict, um, and there are a variety of measures passed and um, policies enacted that seek to um, to circumscribe Americans' abil uh, ability to move in the name of preserving neutrality. So one of the provisions was uh, restrictions on travel to countries at war. Uh, in the wake of Italy's invasion of Ethiopia, Roosevelt called for Americans to avoid uh, traveling on ships uh, of countries at war. Uh, the State Department threatened um, to revoke 
uh, the uh, citizenship or passports of those traveling uh, to Ethiopia with the intention of um, of, of fighting, uh, especially the intention to repel the invasion. Uh, there had been a, a mobilization to defend Ethiopia's sovereignty, particularly among tens of thousands of African Americans and others. Wait, so, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, sorry, Ryan. Um, I, I'm I'm curious just to just to clarify because I think this is like a really interesting point that you just brought up is. Um, were you saying that like the U.S. was using their kind of uh, border and passport controls to limit people traveling to Ethiopia uh, to fight against the invasion? Correct. Okay. Correct. So wow. So right. so it wasn't because I think like a, a lot of the um, I guess like the merits that are given and the narrative of of, of like you know like control is like to protect. Um, the U.S. and people against threats, right? But this was actually a restriction of basically like an imperial war, and basically the U.S. was tacitly using passports um, and border controls to aid that uh, imperial invasion more than just like just defend against it or denounce it. Yeah, and so for them, it's you know for officials, while they may and they did criticize Italy's invasion. Uh, their effort is to prevent a U.S. entry into the war, um, right. and by uh, preventing folks from, or you know, preventing Americans from entering that battlefield and becoming belligerents, uh, they're hoping that it will um, reduce that that possibility. Uh, in fact, you know, it's it's hard to say whether this policy had any real impact. The ability to enforce it is pretty questionable um, in terms of just the, the uh, manpower. But, you know, only two, uh, at least two African-Americans made it to the battlefields in, in Ethiopia um, mm -hmm. to, to join the anti-colonial um, fight. Um, interesting. And so was there a similar attempt to restrict movement to Spain at the time in the 30s? Uh, there were some American fighters who tried to go to Spain to fight in the Civil War. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, the State Department, as hostilities break out, as the Civil War breaks out, uh, unilaterally stamps passports uh, not valid for, for travel to Spain. Um, however, despite this prohibition, 4,000 volunteers join uh the fight against fascism mm -hmm. uh and the it's a technicality that enables them to travel but also just the lack of um enforcement power um mm -hmm. the travel control act did not apply technically to civil wars um it applied to you know war in, wars of invasion um mm -hmm. and uh the State Department didn't really have any teeth uh, or um, penalties uh, for traveling to Spain at, at, at that moment. Um, they only say, uh, warned travelers that the, uh, they could not guarantee their safety uh, yeah. in Spain. We, we learn a lot, right? You know, laws, you know, generally don't mean anything if there's no sort of arm for enforcing them, right? They need an apparatus, right? And so... Post-war, essentially, the State Department's going to start to get that apparatus for enforcing traveling restrictions, correct? Yes, and it's based on its uh, 
what it develops during during World War II in the nineteen in the late nineteen thirties and nineteen forties. Um, there is a an executive order uh, issued um, giving uh, in nineteen thirty eight uh, giving the uh, Secretary of State wide latitude over uh, to determine what, where a passport and thus an individual could travel. Um, they could withdraw or cancel a passport already issued um, and to withdraw a passport for the uh, restricting its use in certain countries. In addition, um, the state, the passport division uh, sought to uh, redesign its passports. There had been a spy scare um, in New York based on a, uh, a spy ring that was discovered where somebody pretended to uh, to be the Secretary of State and ordered a office to give them, you know, a hundred blank passports and they did. Um, so <laughs> I'm not sure how, quite how that worked, but it's one of those things that you see and you're like, that, that seems weird that that would happen. Um, but Probably should have been caught. <laughs> yeah. Well, so they do catch this passport ring. Yeah. Um, and uh, so they instruct the uh, customs and immigration officials to confiscate and submit to the division, the passports of all citizens. Um, and, uh, and they are looking for um, any indication of alteration mm. and for any violation of the Neutrality Act. And the passports were also going to be retained until the application, until uh, another application for a passport was filed. Mm. They also reduced the validity of passports um, from two years to six months uh, in in 1939, as you know, active hostilities are are uh, present in Europe um, and elsewhere. In addition, there is a a change in the law that that governs the state's power to control mobility. So Roosevelt declares a unlimited national emergency in May of 1941. Mm. However, that did not invoke the Travel Control Act. It still remained uh, inoperative. Um, the U.S. was not officially at war, so the Travel Control Act was um, inapplicable. So Officials argued that the laws governing international mobility needed to be amended. So the law, the Travel Control Act is amended to include um, essentially when, uh, net, when the president deems national interests are at, are at risk, uh, that it can be invoked, that passports, that the Travel Control Act and um, control, more stringent controls over mobility uh, can be employed uh, is changed from public safety to national interest. And those were, you know, national interest is a much more broad category. Uh, who and what determines national interest is a indeterminate and ultimately a political decision. Whereas for some officials during that time, public safety was much more of a material and measurable phenomenon. Mm -hmm. um, but it's that shift in the language that really enables these controls over mobility to outlive their life, outlive their 
context of uh, controlling mobility during war as the um, you know, FDR state of emergency would continue to exist into the uh, 1950s. Well, and it's, it's interesting. You have this uh, in the immediate post-war period, you have this quote from a report written by the Intelligence Survey Group uh, in 1948, where they even write, you know, f- talk about limiting, you know, people's travel. They write, fifth column activities and espionage do not begin or end at our geographical frontiers, and our intelligence to counter them cannot be sharply divided on any such geographical basis. And so the inv- invocation of national security, too, allows for this sort of smashing between internal and external, right? You know, it all becomes one as they're sort of advocating. Right. And, you know, the boundaries or the kind of the um, borders of internal, external, foreign, domestic, those are socially constructed and deployed at various times for different ends. Um, And through the Cold War, sometimes the a uh, passport will be understood as a internal security document that it is necessary for the national security within the uh, territory of the United States. Uh, but it's also a foreign affairs document, which it, it's at, it's you know if you read a passport, it's addressing a foreign country. Um, mm. It's used to facilitate interstate uh, travel. Um, and so forth. So it's the document itself and the passport kind of embody that blurriness between internal and external, foreign and domestic. And it's and it's interesting because at the same time, the real question becomes whether or not you can issue a passport to an American citizen who is a member or an avowed member, according to the State Department, of the Communist Party, right? And at one point, oh. A lawyer for the State Department, Richard Flournoy, you write, Flournoy rejected that the state required concrete evidence to contain an individual within the U.S. that, quote, the mere lack of evidence of subversive purpose is not enough to justify the issuance of a passport to an avowed communist, right? So what's happening (laughs) as far as uh, this, this period under Truman and this expansion of travel security? First, you know, we need to place this in the context of uh, the election of um, 19, uh, what is it, 1946, um, in which a very right-wing Congress is elected. Mm -hmm. Uh, Republicans gain control of both uh, houses the first time since, I believe, the the, uh, era of the Great Depression. and so the, the State Department especially comes under attack as a, um, as, a, as a space of potential subversion and repeatedly comes under attack by congressional uh, Republicans and very ardent anti-communist as potentially harboring uh, spies, as uh, treasonous. You know, they blame the State Department for, quote unquote, losing China in 1949. Mm-hmm. So it's really a um, punching bag for a lot of congressional anti-communists. And sorry, just to be clear, like, you know, what happened in China in 1949 was like um, Mao's revolution of of China, like overthrowing the old old rule, right? Correct. Yes, that's, that's what I'm referring to. And um, the U.S. had adopted initially, this is sidetracking here, but what's interesting is actually 
that there were folks within the State Department uh, pushing uh, Truman to uh, not uh, overtly support uh, the nationalists in that conflict and to try to get a kind of coalition government established in China between uh, the nationalists and uh, Mao's Communist Party. Um, but that was rejected um, by the Truman administration. But it's an interesting, you know, what what could have been, right? Um, yeah. Kind of a uh, interesting, um, uh, not yeah, counter counterfactual. Uh, yeah, counterfactual. Yeah, that's the one I'm yeah. looking for. I mean, interesting. We when when I talked with uh, Justin Roll about the 1944 DNC convention, we talked a little about Henry Wallace, and you know, another just funny counterfactual is that Roosevelt sent him largely to get him out of DC, but sent him to China to to do a fact-finding mission. And Wallace wrote this long report where he was basically like, hey, uh, these communists, I think they're going to win. These nationalists, I don't think we should back this. This is a real, pro- this is a real loser. This is a real problem. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, and of course, that report directly in the garbage can. But yeah, I mean, there, there are these moments, right, where things could have gone differently. And instead, here we are, where Henry Wallace might have been president, not true. Yeah, right? yeah he right. should have been president. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, uh, but here we are, right, in the best of all possible worlds. Yeah. <laughs> Sigh. Uh. <laughs> but uh, to get back to it, though, um, so although, you know, the State Department gets attacked for this, the passport division itself is really notorious for mm-hmm. its uh, anti-communist beliefs. Um, it is under the direction of one woman, um, uh, Ruth uh, Shipley. Uh, she governed the division for about 28 years. Uh, mm-hmm. She outlived numerous uh, presidents um, in terms of her political longevity. And, uh, you know, she was actually um, succeeded by another woman who had the great name of Frances Gladys Knight, um, <laughs> uh, who was also a notorious anti-communist and um, referred to by one reporter as the ogress of the passport office. Um, but they uh, had a very, uh, you know, they had a reputation of denying passports to anyone that uh, they felt was, um, had any connections to groups associated with the Communist Party or uh, critiquing, groups critiquing uh, U.S. foreign policy. Um, mm-hmm. And that included uh, groups from the right as well. Um, oh, Interesting. Yeah, Shipley was very, I, I know that um, in doing some of my research, she was uh, in the media post-war era, the passport office was collaborating with the visa division. Um, initially, they were in one office and then they get split up. And uh, she was very uh, you know, adamant about how some of the uh, folks from uh, you know, Nazi Germany, they would not uh, they should they should be denied visas based on their prior membership in the Nazi Party, but also kind of their failure to meet denazification standards. Yeah. Um, so interesting, interesting person. Yeah. Well, it sounds like that worked. I mean, I think only 20,000 former Nazis got into the U.S. So. <laughs> but, yeah, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, let's not even talk about NASA. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, you so, know, 
They like yeah. four-letter acronyms that start with M. I'll just say. That. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, so you know, they they have this very particular anti-communist bent. You even talk about this journalist uh, William Worthy, I believe, right, who gets repeatedly denied, you know, ability to travel and cover international events because he's a suspected communist, right? Uh, so they don't suspect him of membership in the actual communist party. They uh, what they deny him a passport over and are concerned about is his uh are his critiques of u.s foreign policy mm -hmm. so this kind of jumps ahead into the mid-1950s um so just to kind of uh provide a prologue to that uh there are by the late 1940s, as we were talking about, the passport mm -hmm. division was increasingly denying passports to those it saw as a um, threat to U.S. foreign policy. That ability to do that gets enshrined into uh, law in, uh, in the McCarran Internal Security Act passed in 1950, mm -hmm. which denied passports to uh, those um, who belonged to uh, to members of the Communist Party, and it also had penalties for those that issued passports to members of the Communist Party. And then um, the requirement to uh, have a passport to leave um, the country under war or national emergency, and that's important. Interesting. War national mm -hmm. emergency. That's the that is the language that gets adopted in in. Um, the 40s, uh, you know, when uh, they are looking for widening uh, the ability to tra to control travel, um, that gets uh, put into the 1952 immigration law, and that national so the national emergency that FDR declares in 1941 that goes on until the 1950s, and then Truman declares a national emergency in 1950 associated with the Korean War. That actually continues until 1976. Cool. <laughs> yeah. And so it's, it's actually very interesting because as in, in the 70s, there's a Congress that uh, is very, it, it's after Watergate, it's really critical of presidential powers and really looking into um, kind of the abuses of executive authority. And they're looking to... Uh, prevent these emergency declarations and, and these states of emergency from just continuing forever. Um, mm -hmm. And the State Department goes to them and says, well, wait a minute. Um, if uh, you don't change the language here, we're not going to be able to have a passport system um, because it's, it, it's by law, it's only during a war and national emergency. So it's actually in 1978 that a passport becomes required by law in times of war and peace. It doesn't change anything in reality. It just changes the, the letter of the law. But And also, I think, maybe speaks to the intentions from the beginning that this was going to be a permanent state of affairs. You know, yeah, there were efforts in the 1940s to, uh, to think about organizing a different type of system. There was still a commitment to having some sort of identification a document, um, but that didn't necessarily come with it the type of powers associated with the passport and kind of the surveillance that that entailed. And 
Um, there are conferences held uh, in Latin America about the possibility of having a, a hemispheric kind of card that would enable people to travel throughout the hemisphere. There's a uh, conference, or a, a, it's, not a, it's not an actual conference. It's a, it's a conference before a conference. Um, that, mm-hmm. And the conference actually never happens, but a meeting about uh, at, at the UN about um, kind of standardizing travel uh, documents. And, you know, they debate or talk about the alternatives to uh, a passport system. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, those, you know, that doesn't come to fruition. Yeah. So there were there were efforts abroad, especially uh, to to think about reorganizing that system, but um, they failed. And the U.S. and the U.S. did not participate uh, and refused to uh, in the part on on the basis of uh, their conceptions of national security, but also uh, at least in the case of um, when they are when the Pan-American conferences are occurring on this topic, uh, Shipley actually writes that it's the passport that often enables the deportation um, because the passport of, uh, you know, essentially that person is allowed to enter that country. And this identification card, there was no, it potentially uh, could threaten that system. We effectively have this potentially uh, more international setup uh maybe safe to say broken on the wheel of the cold war and the u.s national security interest um yes yeah uh, uh, a tale as old as time i guess for 20th century historians right yes yes it's uh, uh, shattered dreams but <laughs> so you know let's talk a little bit about you know people on the left who challenge this sort of passport regime so you have this journalist william worthy right he uh, I can't remember his exact wording, but he basically says that the U.S. has created this sort of cage around him, right, where he can't leave. They have, they have trapped him in the United States. What is Worthy trying to do, and what is the U.S. trying to stop him from doing? So William Worthy was a foreign correspondent for um, the Baltimore Afro-American. Uh, he also had contracts with CBS. Um, he was a very prominent Black uh, foreign correspondent. Uh, he reported in the, he, he was able to get a passport um, in uh, during and immediately after the Korean War to report on conditions um, on the ground in the Korean War. Um, mm-hmm. He kind of goes on a worldwide tour um, and, uh, but he really comes under, into the crosshairs of the passport division in 1956 in 1957. Mm-hmm. So in 1950, during the Korean War, uh, the State Department uh, or issued a travel ban on both the Korean Peninsula and uh, China. Um, and after China enters the war, uh, they essentially say that uh, Americans cannot enter, cannot travel to China without permission from the State Department, a special stamp. Mm-hmm. And in August of 1956, China sends invitations to several American journalists to visit the country. Mm-hmm. Now, this is during a moment when the United States and China are holding secret talks uh, to negotiate outstanding issues of the, uh, of the Korean War. 
which includes uh, both the issue of imprisoned U.S. personnel and U.S. citizens in China and the repatriation of Chinese in the United States who are prevented from returning to China. And that includes a lot of high-ranking um, and, and uh, expert uh, scientists um, that the United States denies the ability to leave. The invitation to these journalists, including Worthy, is done at a moment when those talks stutter. And it's done pretty publicly. Um, it's intended to highlight the hypocrisy of the U.S. Mm-hmm. And, to pro- and to put added pressure on the U.S. government to allow for this type of mobility. And in order for that to happen, these other conditions need to be met. So Worthy is invited in August of 1956. Um, and he doesn't uh, travel in August, but he does uh, go to, uh, he, he has a passport as a foreign correspondent and he travels to Hong Kong with the intention of going to China. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is the first American journalist to go to China after uh, the Korean War. And uh, he spends several weeks there, um, you know, doctor reporting on um what he is observing and the con- and the conditions and uh, the uh, various policies that have been enacted during uh, you know after the revolution. Mm-hmm. Now, the State Department quickly uh, denounced his trips um, and essentially argue that you know publicly that he is jeopardizing any negotiations that or any leverage that they may have over getting the release of U.S. prisoners in China. Um, There is a concern that this will not just be confined to uh, Worthy, that essentially his travel will uh, lead to a stream of other correspondents, but also missionaries and scholars and that this potentially threatened uh, both the negotiations, but also um, the policy that Washington had against China, uh, which was a very um, you know, hard-fisted one. Yeah. Um, and so Worthy uh, is actually joined by two other journalists while he's in China. The two other journalists are uh, called up by their publisher and said, you need to leave uh, China now. Uh, the Baltimore Afro-American refuses to issue that demand from Worthy. Hell yeah. Wow. And awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the, you know, he spends uh, several weeks there and then he, uh, they announce that they are canceling his passport as a result of violating um the travel restrictions, mm. and uh, he is. Um, they cable the embassy in Moscow because he. It is known that he is going to be um, traveling to Moscow from China, and then making his way to other locales in Europe on his way to the United States. And um, he, you know, the U.S. embassy tries to take his passport away from him. Um, while he actually meets with uh, one of uh, some embassy staff in Moscow, um, mm. they demand to see his passport. He refuses. He leaves the next day surreptitiously 
um, and he arrives in uh, Budapest. Um, uh, Hungary was also under U.S. travel restrictions, <laughs> and uh, there um, uh, he uh, met stiff. He's meet, he meets stiffer resistance from U.S. officials. Um, they were instructed to invalidate the passport and to compel his return. And I love this a language that he uses. So Worthy writes that he is, quote, breaking off relations with the U.S. delegation in, <laughs> in uh, Hungary <laughs> and that he has secured representation from the ACLU uh, because he understands that this is going to go to court and that he's going to um, mm-hmm. – the newspaper has the means and there are, there are attorneys – uh, and civil li- and uh, civil libertarians that are very interested in trying to roll back many of the um, draconian measures that had been passed in 1950, mm-hmm. and uh, so he continues uh, traveling through Europe uh, without really any reported interference. He arrives in Boston, and um, you know he inval- and they invalidate his passport. Uh, he is denied the ability to leave. Mm-hmm. He challenges uh, this um, this this ruling, and he actually goes to court. Um, he brings the State Department over uh, to court, and the State Department uh, challenging the authority of the U.S. Uh, challenge uh, the State Department to uh, control uh, where Americans travel, um, and. <clears throat> the court rules in favor of the State Department. Uh, they essentially argue that uh, travel restrictions are an extension of U.S. foreign affairs uh, and as uh, as foreign policy, and that as as in as a result of that, they are essentially really removed from judicial oversight. Oh, very cool. That's convenient. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, that there's very little that uh, you know the court can can do when it comes to um, actions of uh, foreign policy. So Worthy challenges these travel restrictions. Obviously, does not go the way he had uh, hoped it would. Um, but people aren't done challenging these restrictions, and I th- I think that brings us to this this other group that you talk about, which is the Student Committee for Travel to Cuba, which is you know obviously a student group but is a group that's trying to break a travel ban to the newly formed uh, Cuban revolutionary state in the uh, what mid 1960s, right? That they're going to do this. What, what's the, what's the deal with this group? What's their goal? What are they, what are they trying to achieve here? Right. So uh, the group is uh, created by a few students um, associated with Columbia university. Uh, there's also students from CUNY. Mm-hmm. Um, they are associated with a um, recently formed uh, splinter group from uh, the Communist Party USA, um, the Progressive Labor Movement that will then become the Progressive Labor Party. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the PLM uh, were essentially formed in critiquing the CP's, uh, what they saw as revisionism, and they also are um, have in their early days um, inclinations towards Maoism, and they really identify China as the vanguard of the of um, the revolution. 
Yeah, it's sort of like the representation of the Sino-Soviet split, but just in uh, American politics, I guess. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. 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 And um, so the the official, the people that are um, behind this organization, the Student Committee for Travel to Cuba, to, you know, very the the name does not roll off the tongue, but it's it's very blatant as to what it tries to do. Um, it, the organizing travel to Cuba was seen as both a means to um, uh, organize students in the United States uh, and to organize young people, and also to uh, change U.S. foreign policy uh, towards Cuba. Um, there are so the student committee. There wasn't a previous organization that existed, and, and they kind of exist at the same time. Uh, which was the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, and the Fair Play mm. for Cuba Committee uh, formed in the you know earliest days between the tension as tensions developed between Cuba and the United States. Um, but uh, Fair Play uh, was different in terms of their tactics uh, of how to change policy and how to change uh, you know what they're advocating for. So fair play was really not really open um, in terms of, or didn't really have a left wing politics, or it wasn't it wasn't at, at the forefront of their movement. That's not what they were fo focusing on, um, and they were trying to really play on the battlefield of public opinion. Um, they characterized themselves as truth telling intellectuals and journalists. Mm -hmm. The the, the student committee is different in that it is very upfront uh, that it is a radical student organization, um, that it is there to, um, and that it is going to uh, change U.S. policy by directly confronting it, not not only through um, kind of publishing pieces about the Cuban Revolution. And they mm -hmm. do that, and they do that, but their tactics are different. Mm. So they directly call for flouting the uh, travel ban that had been imposed on um, Cuba. Now, the planning for the trip actually occurs right after um, the October 1962 um, missile showdown between uh, the Cuban Revolutionary Government, the U.S., and the Soviet Union. Um, the... It grew out of a, um, an earlier attempt by uh, some members of Progressive Labor to create a English language pro-Cuban newspaper in Havana that would then be distributed um, to the United States, similar in a way to Radio Free Dixie. Um, mm -hmm. Robert F. Williams had a, a very popular show. Um, for those that don't know, Robert F. Williams was a... Um, Black revolutionary civil rights leader uh, who was fraudulently charged with kidnapping after protecting a few people from being beaten to death by uh, a kind of a mob. And he flees to Cuba um, in order to, uh, you know, escape fraudulent charges. And he uh, starts a radio program called Radio Free Dixie, in which he discusses politics and the Cuban revolution focuses a lot on kind of the importance of Cuba to uh, the black freedom struggle. So mm -hmm. that was, that's kind of what they are um, also trying to do. Mm -hmm. Now, 
they first try to go in December of uh, 1962. That effort is uh, fails um, because uh, the uh, Canada, the U.S. government pressures Canada to refuse landing rights to an incoming Cuban, uh, Cuban airliner that was mm -hmm. scheduled to take the students uh, to the island. Mm -hmm. um, but that they're not deterred. Um, they uh, sought to travel um, uh, through other means. Uh, so the, they begin again in the spring of 1963 to organize um, as many students as possible from across the country. And why are they targeting students? Well, first, uh, they are college students themselves. So they're trying mm -hmm. to use their existing student networks. Second, uh, they believe that college students were, had both the time and were open-minded enough to discuss socialism in a way that was not possible when, uh, with, when entering with discussions with older adults or those can disaffected with the left. Mm. Um, they saw among, uh, they saw in the uh, civil rights movement, the free speech movement on college campuses and the very, the anti-HUAC, the anti House of American, Un-American Activities Committee protests that were, uh, you know, mm. In San Francisco, there's a very famous one in which they actually bring hoses onto protesters uh, outside of a HUAC hearing in San Francisco. Uh, but they see that kind of signs that American youth are dissatisfied with um, Kennedy-era Kennedy liberalism um, and that potentially this is a group that they can mobilize. Um, they are successful in organizing two groups, um, pretty sizable actually. Um, and they are under a hundred, um, but in 1963 and 1964, uh, they organize 59 uh, students in the first iteration. And I think a few less in the second uh, mm -hmm. attempt, in the second trip in 1964. And there's, definite risk in joining one of these groups right like the the state you might find yourself like william worthy without your passport by the time this is all said and done absolutely yes so uh this is done you know all out in the open they're very open about it mm -hmm. um and uh you know as they apply for passports they um either have existing passports or they um say that they are traveling to other countries um, you know, they say that, oh, we're going to Europe on holiday. We are going to, uh, you know, we're going to study abroad in Europe. And that's where most of these individuals uh, put as their destination. Mm -hmm. The, and it's, they're able to do this because the state does not know precisely who's going to be joining these groups. Um, they do have a few informants within those um, organizations. Um, both are one is associated with the FBI, um, who was a, a volunteer informant, uh, was not a paid informant, and then another who was in contact with the State Department but worked with a, a professional anti communist um, by the name of Gordon Hall uh, that essentially uh, inf not infiltrated is the wrong word, but um, it's not the wrong word, I guess. Uh, infiltrated these organizations yeah. and you know took detailed notes about uh, took literature detailed notes and filed away with Gordon Hall who would then use this 
um, against uh, various various groups that he identified as threatening to the U.S. Um, on the on the left and on the right, um, but mostly on the left. But so they do have uh, some uh, 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 they do have some informants there, and that does change how they react to these groups. On the one hand, if uh, they don't uh, try to prevent their departure, um, in part because they're interested in gaining information um, about possible ties to between this group and the Cuban government, if they're going to do a new type of prosecution, mm-hmm. um, possible connections abroad to people that are disaffected in the revolution. Uh, but it's also really hard to determine where they're going to be departing from. Uh, they actually um, try, they, you know, they make their trips to Europe, which is really hard to determine because most of the travel from the United States abroad to outside of the United States is to Europe. Um, they're traveling during the uh, very busy months of tourist travel. Um, and they're also flying in different groups and tra- and different destinations. They go to Par- uh, one group goes to London and um, Amsterdam, and then another goes to um, Paris. Mm-hmm. And so preventing their departure is really difficult. It's almost impossible. There's I don't know how many international airports at that time, but putting FBI uh, folks there is just not yeah. feasible. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, the State Department is really adamant in that it does, and this also occurs again in the in the 1950s when there's some a group that travels to the Soviet Union, but they they are they really want to prevent their departure. The FBI is oh, it's not feasible, but let's just see how this plays out as well. And um, so, you know, they tour the they um, uh, tour the island. They spend uh, over a month. Um, you know, traveling around the island. Um, and this actually prompts a debate about uh, um, whether the U.S. should continue to have travel restrictions. Um, actually, you know, the Johnson administration really um, didn't believe that travel restrictions were either effective and they thought that they were actually contrary to ideals of free speech. But then, mm-hmm. um you know, on the and on the other hand, though, why there was a travel restriction on Cuba was not necessarily because of the students are preventing Americans from going there. Um, they understand that there's very, there's no viable revolution planning going on in the United States at that time, mm. um, at least sizable, and uh, they are actually um, concerned about the potential of. Um, folks from Latin America um, traveling to the to the island and they see in imposing travel restrictions they also get as they break off relations with um, uh, Cuba they get several other countries to impose travel restrictions on their citizens um, and uh, people within the Johnson administration lobby against rescinding them because they think that this will send a message to others that they can, one, uh, allow travel. Um, they are concerned of, you know, uh, the Cuban government has made it known that they will support revolutionary efforts throughout uh, the hemisphere. 
um, and they're concerned that Kiva will provide training and means to execute those revolutions. And uh, they're also concerned about the uh, normalization of relations and the normalization of the country's mm. government. Sounds like we're the villain here, we being the U.S. <laughs> what, what, uh, what makes you say that? <laughs> <laughs> and so it leads to this sort of debate about travel restrictions um, but there's another sort of thing that's happening around the same time in the 1960s, right? That takes us beyond maybe just the the passport office, right? Which is that they're also, you, you mentioned they couldn't watch every airport at once, right? To keep these guys from departing. But the thing is, is they start to have this thought, what if we did put security in every single airport, <laughs> right? And so we've talked a lot about the, the passport regimes, in the 1960s, they begin to start talking about like uh, what in policing they like to refer to as because they think they're in the army hardening the target, right? They want to put in, you know, metal detectors, things like that. How does that come about? So uh, that is uh, distinct from the effort to um, control the travel to specific countries. However, Cuba does, um, you know, and travel to Cuba does play a part in um, that story. So in 1967, 1968, and 19, uh, or beginning really in 1968, the U.S. experiences a very large increase in the number of uh, aircraft um, that were hijacked. And they were uh, mostly attempts to hijack aircraft to redirect the flights to Cuba. Yeah, this is um, what's generally referred to as the golden age of hijacking, which is one of the cooler names for anything that's happened in the United States. <laughs> right. That's actually coined. That, that is actually coined by a journalist who wrote a book about um, this, this, you know, moment of time, which is very odd that, you know, it's in 1967 through the early seventies that hijacking becomes a primary focus. Like people are focusing on it. Mm -hmm. um, people don't use the word terrorism quite yet to associate, to describe it. They use skyjacking. Mm -hmm. um, that sounds really... cooler, honestly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's a very odd, it's a weird moment, but it's, it's also in a moment when um, you have various uprisings in American cities, particularly, you know, throughout the 1960s over uh, uh, police, you know, policing over poverty Good thing we um, solved all that, right? Right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, what's in, and it's not the first time that the U.S. had uh, um, uh, hijackings before. Mm -hmm. um, there were f about five hijacking attempts that were also mostly directed to Cuba um, in 1961. Um, the hijacking was actually not made a federal crime until 1958 just shows you how very how rare it was but also not on the radar mm -hmm. um in fact in the debate over whether and hearings about what to do about whether there should be airport security in 1961 after those five hijackings um it the debate about that is added on to an already existing uh bill uh they are talking about uh, the issue 
that they are really concerned about is inebriated passengers and drunk passengers <laughs> on flights who are starting uh, on flights who are, uh, you know, really, you know, yeah, causing uh, problems on the flight. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah causing problems that uh, I heard that Pan Am flights. service was really nice back in mm-hmm. back in the day. Oh, yeah. Airfare. I mean, flying was a and traveling uh, by air was a luxury and um, definitely made sure to evoke that as well, that it was mm-hmm. something um, super modern uh, and reserved for and, you know, that was um, people dressed in to the nines, dressed in their finest to go travel on an airplane. I cannot imagine wearing. I see some people still, you know, for business and stuff wearing suits, but God, I can't imagine doing that. Sitting in the middle coach seat, yeah. <laughs> sitting in the middle coach seat, just sweating, uh, wearing the suit. But. Well, I, I must say though, hearing Congress talk about inebriated passengers on airlines, it is nice to feel seen by my Congress. So. <laughs> 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 but you, but you, we are kind of speaking to it a thing that is happening at this time, which you do kind of get at in your dissertation, which I think is interesting, which is. Air travel, the, the exact time these discussions are happening is at a time when air travel is democratizing, in a sense, right? The the clientele is changing from just the wealthy and the business traveler to potentially Correct. other people. And Correct. as always, that's when the police show up. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, so, but yeah, go, go on. Uh, no, so uh, it's, you know, in 1968 and... Uh, 1969, there are a, a lot of U.S. aircraft that are hijacked. Uh, the Johnson administration, um, it's a, in the last years of their administration, they, they, they put together a task force to study the, the problem and to develop ways to and um, procedures to t- kind of address this issue. Um, and so the task force uh is a collection is led by two uh, is led by a psychiatrist and a psychologist from the FAA, um, and then a group of other kind of um, social scientists that um, work with the FAA and the Department of Transportation. Um, they develop a profile system uh, that is intended to uh, not is intended to screen out potential hijackers. They look mm-hmm. at all of the hijackings that had occurred in 1968 and 1969. Um, They uh, look at, they say that there's nothing intrinsic to a hijacker, um, but that certain behavior will tell you whether that person is potentially a hijacker or not. Um, Now that person who was, how the system worked was that a profile was developed it was a set of behavioral category uh, you know, characteristics, um, portions of which were distributed to various airline personnel. So airline personnel are the first four are at the front lines of this effort. Um, so ticket agents would mark the tickets of people that were deemed to be selectees, mm-hmm. and uh, those individuals would be uh, surveilled by. Um, guards, um, federal marshals that were stationed um, at airports. Uh, they created an a actual um, uh, uh, sky marshal program in the 1970s um, that preceded the air marshals that we have today. And they were, you know, just as a side note, they were jokingly referred to themselves as flying pigs. 
Uh, Back when cops had one ounce of a sense of humor. (laughs) Um, So, uh, and they would mark these individuals as selectees. Uh, Those individuals prior to boarding, depending on the airport, either they would be subject to a uh, pat down um, or further kind of questioning and then a pat down. Or if the if they're the um, airport had installed metal detectors, they would be asked to walk through uh, one of the metal detectors to determine whether they had and they were possessing any weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were different um, types of screening depending on the type of airport and the uh, flight under consideration because uh, you know under domestic flights and U.S. Uh, and U.S. flag carriers, you can do a lot more. Um, you, you have a lot more control over. But um, airlines from other countries, you don't have so much um, control. Those are governed by international agreements and you know by the governments that uh, from which those companies are located. Mm-hmm. So there was a different um, protocol for them. And so sort of as these restrictions are going in, you tell the story uh, of this guy, Mort Schultz from Popular Mechanics. He decides in true reporter fashion, why not just uh, fill my suitcase full of silverware and see and go check the security regime out? So what, what happens to Mort when he decides to test the security regime? Uh, so Mort, uh, this is a, during a time when they are using this profile system. Um, he goes, passes through the... Uh, metal metal detector and sets it off um and he uh you know he looks around and he's actually permitted to board uh he's not asked to remove any of his metal objects or what have you um he's just like permitted and you know he he writes he's like he laughed kind of and was was kind of taken aback by this (laughs) and uh you know goes to the air marshal that is that is stationed there and um, and one of the federal officers is stationed there. He's like, why didn't you inspect me? Which is something that I don't think anybody would ask or should ask. Yeah, but. I would never, <laughs> ever <laughs> fucking do that. Do not do that, listener. Do not yeah, do please. This. Like, this is official <laughs> advice. Don't do that. <laughs> you know, but he's a reporter and he's doing a, doing a story. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, they said he was not uh, somebody that they, he was not a threat, right? Mm-hmm. They did not identify him as a threat. And, um, we don't know the actual details of the uh, um, actual profile. Those uh, still remain classified. It's um, possible that the profile actually forms the basis of other profiles that get used, um, especially by the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, um, in the in the mid seventies and then after um, to kind of surveil and. Uh, target those that they believe are um, trafficking um, various substances. Mm-hmm. Well, th- th- this is actually really interesting, Ryan, because I have like a personal um, anecdote that relates to this. Um, like when I was a college student, I studied abroad in Greece, and you know, I, st- I was, um, you know, I was there over the summer, and uh, this was like a little before um, the Trump administration. So this is during the Obama administration. Um, mm-hmm. When I uh, and, you know, it was a great time. And this is like I went with my university and everything, right? And um, when we all, like, I traveled back, everyone had their separate flights. Um, you know, I land into Canada and we have these kiosks now where we, you know, scan our passports. Like, I 
a citizen of the U.S. I was born and raised mm-hmm. here. Um, and, you know, I scan my passport and usually it'll like take a picture of your photo and like, you know, print out this thing um, where you hand to a kiosk guy to like just go through. Right. I was like, this is a layover in Canada to get back to the U.S. Um, and instead of it printing out like my information, it just prints out like a big X. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, uh oh, not that can't be good, right? Not great. <laughs> Did so it tell I, you to set the X floor down on the floor and stand yeah, on it? Yeah. <laughs> right. And and so I, I take I take this ticket to the uh, kiosk guy, and I like hand it to him, like, hey, maybe there's like something funky going on with the kiosk, and he just looks at it and he's like, okay, sir, follow me. And brings me to like this back room um, where I subsequently get uh, interrogated, I think by a DHS officer, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and he asked me all of these uh, questions on like, you know, like why I'm coming back here, like what I was actually doing in uh, in Greece, uh, where did I travel to Greece? And he like, uh, I mean, like asked for my address and all of these uh, different details. And I'm like, this doesn't, this is like not really natural and then um he was like so have you ever uh traveled kind of east of uh of greece i'm like no (laughs) he was like and then he was just like you know like do you ever go into syria or (laughs) (laughs) what do you know about the belden program (laughs) i don't have any familial connections with syria or the middle east at all um and have no prior history of you know doing that but you know um i was only um i was only a black person in my like group of like 17 um you know students who like went to greece i have like a pretty like you know long um a first name and I have like an interesting last name, I guess. But um, I straight up asked him because at this point I was just like annoyed and kind of realizing what was going on. And I was like, how did, how did you like select me? Like where, where was this like coming from? Right. I'm like a college student at the time. Um, and he was just like, yeah, well we have algorithms that detect threats and uh, you know, uh, we just need to do our due diligence to make sure you're not one of those ISIS types. <laughs> <laughs> just like get me the fuck on my layover flight like i'm gonna if i miss this because of this like gonna scream so they were really concerned about that one meme you tweeted was very uh threatening well and so munia just to put a button on it uh how was your time fighting in the syrian civil war (laughs) (laughs) but uh yeah uh I, I think this is this is Mort's sort of conclusion too in the article race right? says the uh you know he thinks he doesn't get picked because he's not dark skinned or have a swart what he calls a swarthy appearance. <laughs> right. And it's uh very uh popularly known. I mean, if you look at the political cartoons of the era, um kind of the media of the era, the depiction of uh hijackers is one of like uh, white hippies, white counterculture um, uh, folks, but also there's also the, um, at least in the part of state officials, kind of citing potential ties between various uh, left-wing and radical organizations and um, hijackers abroad, uh, particularly um, the uh, 
P, uh, uh, Party for the Liberation, or uh, I can't remember, quite remember the name. The acronym is PFLP. Um, I believe it is a um, group that was very famous for a very militant Palestinian freedom organization um, mm-hmm. that uh, used hijacking as a way to uh, uh, try to extract uh, concessions and free some uh, prisoners, political prisoners, but also to kind of internationalize the struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, but they cite in the, at least in public, the potential of uh, you know folks like the Black Panthers at uh, Hoover in testimonies says that, you know, there is possible ties between Arab terrorists and in uh, the Black Panthers. Um, and there's a concern that, you know, weatherman groups will be aping their tactics as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's the, you know, and the F- with the FBI and COINTELPRO, there's this definite inside-outside idea of, right, that the uh, the internal threats as they see them to the United States are almost certainly, because everybody's an outside agitator, getting help from, out, you know, outside mm-hmm. threats of the United States, but also could be working to bolster these interests, Soviet interests, etc., in the United States, right? Right, yeah, and it's it's... It's unclear whether, I mean, I don't, uh, I didn't research a lot of FBI or had access to a lot of FBI documents for this. I mean, publicly, he is stating that, but whether that is actually what they come to believe mm-hmm. within the organization is another matter. I, I do know that uh, there's a new book coming out in the fall or late summer on kind of the FBI and uh, the uh, their reaction to kind of the Black Liberation Army, the Weather Underground. Um, and they talk about how the FBI was pretty reticent about adopting kind of the tactics of the 1950s um, uh-huh. and that Hoover himself was very wary about it. So I'm not sure about kind of the internal debates within the FBI over this issue. Yeah. Um, but at least publicly, that's what they're saying. Um there is concern amongst uh, officials at the FAA, the Department of Transportation, and elsewhere that people are not taking this serious enough, um, that they believe it's a joke. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there, there are jokes on late night TV that saying, you know, I was on my way on a flight, but had a nice little detour to Havana, had a nice uh, Cuba Libre, uh, got to spend some time on the beach, and then now here I am. Um, a magazine kind of publishes like a a joke map of Cuba um, in it. Uh, You know, one of those airline magazines. Yeah. I think it's it's even a, it's a joke in Cannonball Run where they negotiate on the plane for 20 minutes of where they're going to, where the hijacker is going to go because he wants to go to Cuba, but other people want to go other places. Right, right, right. Um, So there is a concern. And I think a lot of the threat inflation of citing these, uh, these organizations in the U S and their potential ties um to abroad is also done to kind of it's an effort to say to folks that no you need to take this seriously yeah and uh i think even cite that there's some sort of they like interview kids or something about hijacking and all the kids like in this interview with kids they all just basically like 
Uh, yeah, no, not a problem. <laughs> Victimless <Yeah>. crime. <laughs> so it's not, it's, yeah, that's in their final report, and it's not yeah. clear as to whether they conducted that interview or if it was done by somebody else. But they yeah. ask, um, the way they term it, uh, a group of six, I think it's uh, you know, late adolescent teenage uh, black ghetto, this is their words, quote, black ghetto Sunday school children. Um, whether uh, hijackers should face punishments for their actions and their response is no, they didn't hurt anybody. Um, and they cite that as kind of a sign that, you know, this public is not taking it seriously, but also this needs to be read in the context of the various urban rebellions mm-hmm. against police brutality, against poverty uh, that have been occurring. And particularly that can, uh, the uh, turn towards heavy policing of black youth in those cities yeah and you know we're gonna cite that as a sign of those kids being extremely cool (laughs) (laughs) so oh go ahead go ahead no no go ahead oh i was just gonna move on uh you know in the so in the early 70s right this other thing is happening too which is they're going to redefine sort of the space of the airport itself which will allow greater surveillance greater security and you cite these two court cases, U.S. v. Lopez in 1971 and U.S. v. Epperson in 1972. And without getting into the extreme details of the cases, what do they essentially do as far as like reshaping the political and like security geography of the airport? So the those two cases involved the discovery of narcotics. I believe I have to. I would have to take a look again. Um, it's been a while, um, but they are looking at. Uh, the defendants in those cases are appealing their convictions on the grounds that the search was illegal and that they shouldn't have been able to prosecute them for possession of heroin or another substance um, and that the search itself was unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the search that they are challenging is both the use of the profile system and the use of the metal detector. Mm-hmm. Um the metal detector actually has a very interesting genealogy. Um, it's actually used almost in, uh, solely in uh, prisons uh, beginning in the 1930s. Um, and it's very rare in the 1930s. There's a couple at Alcatraz. There's a couple There's a couple at a, another uh, penitentiary. Um, but prisoners in their memoirs understand metal detectors as devices of um, discipline. And also uh, in one memoir about Alcatraz, they say that it was um, used by the guards to humiliate um, prisoners um, uh-huh. in, in front of others because they would be required to strip um, naked um, if they if they triggered the alarm and the, and the uh, prison ward uh, guard would trigger it, you know, just to shame them. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, so it's interesting that that technology is really understood as really invasive um, as only applicable to prisoners then becomes used in these spaces that you know are associated with uh, hypermobility um, and um, lesion mm-hmm. and in order to do that in order to rationalize these searches uh, the courts argue that these are similar and analogous to uh, border searches. 
And um, there is some there. So generally, the Fourth Amendment would apply to um, searches. So the Fourth Amendment, right, requires um, is a you know would in theory require a warrant mm. um, to uh, to search somebody or their or their belongings. Um, that kind of I won't go into the detailed history of how that changes. But essentially, there is a what is called a border search exemption in which the Fourth Amendment does not apply to the U.S. border. Um, mm-hmm. it, it allows for much more invasive searches. And the courts rule that airport searches are analogous to an air, uh, to a border search uh, as a, in, due to their function as a border, right? They are a port of entry, um, mm-hmm. despite their distance from actual territorial borders um, and um, the uh, kind of how, yeah, just how they function. Um, Mm -hmm. They're also a border. Yeah. And it's this important point, right? Because, you know, as you note, the, you know, as you just mentioned, right, you know, Fourth Amendment rights disappear in border zones. A lot of your rights disappear in border zones. I mean, the ACLU, Mm likes to refer to them as constitutional constitution free zones and things mm-hmm. like that. Uh, you can be held uh you know without a lawyer things like that um and this really does fully reshape the airport right it, it kind of gives if you have an international terminal it kind of gives the state free will to put up what they want essentially it uh, so there are a variety of cases about it, but yes, it, it would authorize uh, a, you know a whole slew of techniques to um, surveil the public that could not necessarily be used elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of interesting too because at this time, I mean, you mentioned the '60s, early '60s, the airlines themselves sort of re- re- you know resist things like metal detectors because. They think it's, you know, offensive to their jet setting, you know, class of travelers. But at the same time, they see it as like a source of costly delays. Uh, mm-hmm. In the 70s, when they get introduced, obviously, there are, you know, people who are very upset about this over civil rights concerns and things like that. But what we see is what we see with all security regimes, right? It's just a steady normalization to where now I think a lot of people would be happy to just have them back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, and the uh, especially compared to the measures that were imposed in the two thousands, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, with the way I see it, is that the airport is essentially this place that kind of rationalizes and normalizes these uh, techniques and um, and technologies. Um, you know, the metal detector is deployed in airports. There's still uh, hesitancy to deploy it elsewhere. Um, there's still there's a uh, I was reading the other day um, kind of a note by the Justice Department saying that it's still really invasive um, and should only be used in uh, measures that require very high security. Um, to so in, even in the mid 1970s, and mm-hmm. it's in the late 80s and early 90s that metal detectors people get used to them um, that they start being deployed uh, to schools. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. In my in my research on police and schools, the first use of metal detectors in the late 70s and early 80s, 
all the journalism on it, it you know when they mention metal detectors are always prefaced with this idea of airport style metal detectors mm-hmm. they say this over and over again and it's always given this a little bit of like you know a little bit of cringe of like ooh are we really going to put this in the school right there's even a a joke in this education journal about it where you know it's the depiction of the school is like a castle with a moat and the guy's just saying once we get the airport style metal detectors in it'll be real it has like guard towers you know then it'll be really secure mm-hmm. and uh and it, yeah you're right by the 80s because we've all been through them at the airport or whatever all of a sudden it becomes not only an okay thing to put in schools but something that is maybe uh you know desirous uh, you know desired by people with the youth crime panic and stuff going into the 90s right and and it's funny because what happens with you know the various quote-unquote offenses that these you know these kids are you know so-called found guilty of i don't want to use that language but you know mm-hmm. um it, very, it mimics what is what happened at airports when they were first deployed. The mo- the majority of arrests and stops at airports were not for weapons um, possession; uh, they were for uh, drug related offenses, uh, immigration, um, mm-hmm. and other and other things. And you see this replicated in schools where it's not about policing weapons; it's about you know, making sure disciplining a particular subset of the population. So maybe now's a good time to sort of bring it sort of into the present. And, you know, a lot of, obviously after 9-11, airport security measures went, (laughs) went uh, through the roof. If you, if you had put your money down on airport security systems, you're doing quite well. Um, A lot of like security experts and stuff, they like to refer to this as security theater, arguing that it's a lot of, you know, it's a, it's a lot of show, not a lot of actual function when it comes to these things. Given sort of your research into this evolution of airport security, what's your sort of take on the last 20 years and what we've done? Oh, it's absolutely a show. Um, it's a... Um... Also, a, a, as you said, it's a show that earns a lot of profits. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's a we it, it it does not protect us. It's a system that you know fails incredibly. But it, it's attempting, like a lot of policing, to solve very complex social and political issues that require a social and political response, mm-hmm. not a policing response. I think one of the things that's interesting in your dissertation is you talk about this creation of lookout lists and things like that in the 1970s, where they would make lists of, you know, American citizens who airports were supposed to be weary of or, you know, whatever, if they, you know, wary of if they see them on, you know, trying to board a plane. And we have this sort of evolution now to the no fly list, equally secret of who's on it. But control your flights so what does this say about the american notion of freedom to travel i think when people think about the distinction between the u.s and the cold war sort of east the eastern bloc the soviet union etc freedom of travel they would say right off the bat is that's one of the freedoms we have that they don't but what is what does this say how does this complicate that i think this says that the freedom to travel for some um largely a white and in the 50s 60s male 
middle-class, upper-class population was contingent on the exclusion of immigrants and the policing of uh, working class and black and brown folks. Um, and that that freedom to travel was also contingent on American power abroad, right? The, mm -hmm. the fact that uh, Americans can travel wherever they want is it, it speaks to kind of the US, uh, the US's power um, globally. I think maybe we can end on that. You got any questions, Munya? You got anything else you want to add? Uh, actually, no. I, I, this is a really awesome and detailed discussion. I really appreciate your time, Ryan. Oh, it was, it was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. The money's not to be on the cows, not to be It's freedom and liberty and access to a land. Get rid of this abusive government. It's free real estate. space.